from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Carl Morell on February 13, 2017. Carl is the principal United Nations representative at the Baha'i Office of Public Affairs. He works with the UN and other non-governmental organizations in areas such as the advancement of women, sustainable development, and human rights. I started the interview by asking Carl where he grew up. And what was it like growing up there? Well, I'm a native New Yorker, and I grew up in Harlem in the mid-50s. I like to think that it was the very end of the energy of the Harlem Renaissance. The actors that are well-known in the Harlem Renaissance were still alive, and they were elders at that time. Some were still living there. Because of segregation, my neighbors were doctors and lawyers and educators, and I remember it as being a very um, encouraging place to grow up in a working-class neighborhood. I have uh, fond memories of growing up there. And what was your religious life like growing up? Well, both my parents had Caribbean backgrounds. So a lot of communities founded churches when they came to the States. So there was a small West Indian church of people that my father knew in his home of Barbados, and he also spent some time in Trinidad and Tobago. So uh, that was the place where I began to go to church, it was Episcopalian. When uh, I got to be old enough to take uh, spiritual training, my mom switched churches to an Episcopalian church that had uh, children's classes because that initial church we went to did not have children's classes. So. I went to that church and started Sunday school. It was a great, vibrant church. It had a lot of resources. The children had their own service. I went to it. And then it got serious when we became, I think, 12 or 13, because that was the year that we were to be confirmed. And so, you know, that year, the fun was, was over. You know, we <laughs> we had a priest who was our teacher that year. And... Uh, was pretty serious, much more Bible-centric. Our priest was very stern, Mr. Reed, as I recall, Father Reed. You know, then we became confirmed. And one of the things that immediately changed was that, you know, you went with the adults. That sort of nurturing, encouraging uh, environment of the children's service was no longer available to you, so you had to go in with the adults, and I immediately was not attracted to it. But I went, for the most part, for the year, and I, I think I paid close attention. And each year in the Episcopalian calendar has a theme, and each one of those weeks there's a sermon about it. The sermon that I heard... The second year around, I could have sworn it was kind of like the same sermon I had heard the previous year. That didn't sit well with me as a young kid who was like 14. 
everything in my world is changing. So I, I guess you could say I took a break. I didn't know what to make of it, but I certainly wasn't attracted to it. So I took some time off to as a young man, but I was also going to Lutheran school. And that was interesting in, in another way, because even though it's not taught this way, you learn about a religious search. You learn about Luther's religious search. And that was very interesting to me to see that someone who had a belief and was a member of the great Catholic church, you know, he stood up against it and formed what ended to be his own church. So I just thought that this idea of search was pretty interesting. And that was sort of what I held on to. But, you know, we're in high school now and we're having a, a class of religious training. We have a priest and, you know, we're teenagers. We're asking all these questions that the uh, the priest couldn't answer. And I remember him saying at one point when we were just bombarding him with questions, he said, you know, you just have to believe. You have to believe. And I remember thinking, no, I, I don't. I think there should be some answers that's where I, I kind of left it, you know. I wasn't searching for anything, but that was sort of where I was. When I got to college, I met a young man, an older student who lived relatively close to me. And he offered me a ride home during one of the breaks. To my dismay, he wanted to show me his home. And the reason it was to my dismay is because that meant we had to pass my home to get to his home. I wasn't too pleased by that. We get to his house. While he was greeting some family members or something, I went into his room to wait for him. There was a picture that I now know was of Baha'u'llah's son, Abdul Baha, and some Arabic writing. Both of which were very odd to me. I, I don't think I'd ever seen Arabic writing, and I didn't have any idea who this older gentleman with a white beard and this cap tilted on his head was. This Abba that I've learned it is called. Now, I just wanted to know who was this person, because it didn't fit what I thought my friend, an African-American guy like me, what, what, what is this? He never mentioned it. He said to me, uh, during this break, I'll meet you and give you a book. And the book that he gave me was a book called Thief in the Night, which is written by a gentleman named William Sears. It was written from a Christian point of view. And what if Christ returned? What if, if such a thing happened? How would you know it? What would happen? I thought it was an interesting premise, but I also felt confident that if it wasn't accurate or if it was some ruse of sort that I would e easily be able to see through it. I felt confident about that. So I began to read it. And then my, all of my Bible study with Father Reed kicked in. <laughs> I had never paid much attention to the stories that he had shared with us during that year of classes on the way to confirmation. But there they were, all these stories he had shared with us about this coming of Christ the return of Christ. And actually, I read the book and I believed what it said, and I believed that Baha'u'llah had fulfilled that prophecy. And I thought two things, wow, that just wasn't 
how I expected it to to happen. And let me read this book again and look up every one of these Bible quotations that it has in it and to confirm what I think I believe. So I did that. And so within the course of a weekend, I read the book twice. I looked up all these Bible verses and I did believe that Baha'u'llah was the uh, fulfillment of Christ's prophecy that he, he would come again in the spirit of the Father. So that part was easy. The part two for me was kind of difficult for me to get a grasp on was the fact that he said all the religions came from the same source and they were all one of a progressive message from God. And I had never heard of such a thing. It, it was just so new. So then I began to gather scriptures from other religions, which I'd never read or, or really even known about. And I began to read them for myself and saw that, my goodness, they did have, in some cases, even similar stories. Some of the stories from the Old Testament are in the Quran, and, and some of the stories from some of the other scriptures have similar aspects or purposes that are in the Old and New Testament. So that was very interesting for me. That process took about a year and a half or so. By this time, I was no longer in college. I was back in New York. And then I found out that there was this thing called the Baha'i community that was in New York. I began to attend Sunday programs there that were available to the public. And I guess it was soon after that that you became an adherent of the Baha'i faith? Yeah, I, th I think that I kind of observed, I was very observant, and I, I just wanted to see what this community was. And, and, and so, yeah, it took about a year, I guess, within a year, I became a Baha'i. Mm -hmm. What was your family, your parents' reaction to you being involved in this religion and becoming a Baha'i? My mother, as I recall, was very supportive, like mothers are. I remember her coming to an event, I guess one of these Sunday public events, and she sat there, and her her response was, this is very interesting, because I think that the people here believe what this is, like they're not running from something. They believe what this is. What I understood her to mean is that, you know, sometimes people join things because they're going through something. That was her experience, and so she didn't see that these people called Baha'is were doing that. They were running towards something, which is the inevitable unification of humankind. And my dad was becoming, in his retirement, an Episcopal priest. You know, he was starting to get out in the religious community, and so he would run into Baha'is in interfaith events and whatnot. So to him, it was a real thing. It wasn't something he hadn't heard of. So they were both supportive of my becoming a Baha'i. You said you'd mentioned you went to college? Yeah, I went to a small college in New England. I went there for a couple of years. This thing about going to college with some families in the African-American community is a desire for their kids because for a lot of families, even in this present time we live, it's not something a lot of families have a history of. So it was a desire for my family that I go to college, even though I had other opportunities to work in the private sector. 
So I decided after two years that I just wanted to take some time off work in the private sector. So I started with one of those famous 1970 tech startups that has become successful and it, it still exists today. The thing about those companies is literally you went there and you learned how to become a programmer or whatever you did on site. You know, you learned the job because you couldn't go to school and learn those jobs. So that was what, how I started. I was called a computer operator because there were not personal computers in those days. There were only mainframe computers. So I was I operated mainframe computers. But you also got yourself into securities investments as well? Yeah, you know, sometimes I talk to young people and those 70s and 80s were very unusual times in that companies hired you with the understanding that they would train you. They preferred actually that you had less training because they wanted you to be specifically trained in the way that they wanted you to be trained. I worked in that field for a while in the 80s. I was a mortgage-backed securities accountant in the famous halcyon days of Wall Street. There were a lot of companies that were growing quickly and money was abundant. Most of your work history is at the Baha'i United Nations office. I'm wondering if you could tell me the story of how you went from the private sector to working for the Baha'i United Nations office. I had worked on a job. It was advocacy for the environment. The Baha'i National Community Office of the Environment got wind of it. And they said, oh, you're working on the environment. We have an office on the environment. Do you have time to, to intern, to volunteer? Because we're working on this large environmental conference. And I did have some time to do that. And this big environmental conference that they were talking about was what turned out to be the Earth Summit in Rio. So through their preparation for that conference, I learned a lot about the work of the office. I learned a lot about the United Nations environment. And after volunteering there for about a year, someone was leaving this United Nations office and I was asked to apply for the office because I had been working there and they knew me. They thought that I would be a suitable candidate. And so I got the job there as an assistant in the early 90s. And that's how I began to work in the office. What is the mission of the Baha'i office for the United Nations? Well, the United States Baha'i office is associated to the United Nations through its Department of Public Information. We are a sister organization of the Baha'i International Community, which represents the international governing body of the Baha'i faith, known as the Universal House of Justice, which sits in Israel. It's the only national assembly that has representative there, and I think it comes out of an historic legacy in that when the United Nations was founded, the Baha'i community was much smaller than it is now. And it didn't have as robust a world center as it does now. So the Baha'is of the United States and Canada were asked to hold that representational seat for the Baha'i world. And then when the Baha'i international community came into existence, through the existence of the Universal House of Justice in 1963, then the Baha'i International Community came into existence and the 
Baha'is of the United States stayed on as a representative in the host country. So many of the non-governmental organizations in New York are United States based, and we work with many of them on uh, issues. They're the same issues that the Baha'i International Community works on in an international scope. You had mentioned that your office works with a number of NGOs. Some of the issues that were mentioned that you work with are issues related to the advancement of women, sustainable development, human rights. I'm wondering if you could explain how the UN Baha'i Office works with other NGOs in these areas. The NGOs work together around initiatives, just as you said. The thing that's interesting is that each year, things change. Governments change. Members of the NGO community change. Different initiatives happen that affect the work in the short term of the organization. All of these things come into play, and you have to be somewhat flexible in how you operate. One of the things over time that the UN has done is that it has organized its work into a structure that everyone can follow. So it has currently organized its work into something called the Sustainable Development Goals. And these are a poverty alleviation goal structure that anyone can follow and that communities follow, municipalities follow. And that's one of the, I think, trends that we are seeing is that civil society, people like you and I and our listeners have taken these goals and are beginning to embrace them and they are enacting them in their daily lives and they're not waiting for governments to legislate on their behalf. They can take these goals and begin to enact them. For example, the Convention to End Discrimination of Women, CEDAW, uh, the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, uh, the United States has not ratified that convention. But many municipalities in the United States and a few states have ratified it so that these norms that have been founded in the UN, people are taking them on even if their national governments haven't. That's a wonderful trend because it is one of Baha'u'llah's desires is that the people of the world will find voice and not to have a few people make decisions which affect the most. Yeah, it's kind of interesting, Carl, that more and more we're seeing change come from the grassroots rather than from national governments. Yeah, it's the newest trend in the governmental organization. Not so long ago, when governments thought about what they were going to do, they only thought about what they were going to do. They did not have much of a concern for the people's voice, whereas now every government has a concern and they already have a calculus for everything they do because they know that the people's voice will be heard. And that's in all governments, regardless of the repression, it's harder in areas 
in governments where there are repression, but it's happening in those places as well. Now, you also have worked with the interfaith community. Yeah. Maybe you could explain a little bit what your work is there. I just talked about some trends, and there are trends in everything right now. If I could put a big face on it is to have more conversations and to have more meaningful conversations and to have less speeches. And so that's the way that the UN is set up. It's designed, in my mind, like a PhD model where there's a problem, you gather data about the problem, and then you present your findings. It has its place, but what also needs to happen is that those of us who work in environments where we work with other people, we have to sit down and talk our way and learn to have conversations about these issues that we're dealing with. That's a harder thing to do. And is a trend that we're beginning to see. And I think it's a trend that the Baha'i community is encouraging and trying to enact from its point of view, trying to contribute that as part of its contribution to this work. Obviously, when you work in an interfaith environment, it's harder or more challenging to get people to have these discussions. It's almost similar to governmental conversations where you know, the sovereignty of a person's religion is seen as something to uphold. So when you have these open conversations about things, it's harder to organize. So I'm trying to learn how to, how to have more conversations with people and less speeches. In 2008, you became the principal UN representative. So how did that change what you had to do there? You know, before I became the principal representative, I was a representative, but I was not the principal. So I had been used to being a representative. But I had also, as I told you, that I had been an assistant in the office. So I kind of knew the office from support end and from the representative end. What made this work interesting and what is remarkable about it is the growth of the Baha'i community. And I want to I take you back to something I told you earlier. Remember I told you that when I first became an adult in the church, in the Episcopal church that I was in, and I sat there for a year and it seemed to be stagnant, it seemed to be the same thing as I got into the second year that I was hearing stuff I had heard the year before. Well, that's exactly the opposite of my experience as a Baha'i. The Baha'i community, I find, is a very thoughtful community. The leadership of the Baha'i community is constantly challenging to grow and to learn more, to be thoughtful, and to be better neighbors and better co-workers and better colleagues. So my experience since uh, 2008 has been to learn these new conceptions of how to do the work in this diplomatic sphere, which is 
an older sphere. It needs updating. And I can assure you that when you're in the halls of the United Nations, everyone talks about that. It is not a secret. Everyone knows that we're in an old paradigm that needs updating and it's a little bit of who's going to be that person or that entity to, to do the new thing that everyone need, knows needs to be done. So the Baha'i community, we're doing our part. We're trying to do our part to bring some new paradigms that are not out of the blue. People are imagining and are perceiving but in a sense, don't know how to achieve. And these new paradigms, Carl, is this related to this encouragement of dialogue? Maybe you could expand a little bit on what these paradigms people have a vision of for the UN in the future. Well, one of the things everyone knows is that sovereignty of the states and even organizations, you know, has its limits. Everyone knows that you can go but so far if things are not shared, if resources aren't shared, that is a big part of the environmental conversation. If concern for those who have less than you isn't shared, if the narrative that is being crafted does not include more voices, but includes the voices of, to more of an extent of the founders or the, the more economically prosperous, everyone knows it'll lead to a solution that does not speak to everyone's needs. And so in the knowing of this, how do you begin to move things in a different manner. And one of the answers is in governments, the change is, is at a less quick pace. You nudge things forward, you move things forward. And then, of course, because they're governments, things can change if leadership changes. So you have to be, again, I said this before, you have to be flexible because things change under you and around you so you have to be able to move forward in the midst of change. And that's not a task that everyone's comfortable with. I looked on your LinkedIn page, and you had on there something called the Values Caucus. Could you tell yeah. us about that? This is an example of nudging the ball forward or the work forward. So in the 1990s, the UN had a, had a wise idea, and that was to highlight the various aspects of its agenda, the major things on its agenda, and have these world conferences. So they had one on women, social development, on uh, the environment. And the one on social development, the secretary general of that conference, who was the secretary general of the ILO, Juan Samavia, you couldn't say a spiritual uh, component, but he wanted something that talked about ethics and values. So he put out into the ether that it would be great if civil society could create something that a values entity for this conference. So there was a values caucus created for this social development conference and it was very well received and it got to present an ethical paper at the uh, conference that was part of the conference outcome document. 
And when people came back to New York, those who were there said, we would like to continue to have this caucus continue. Over the years, the Values Caucus has given birth to other caucuses. There's a spiritual caucus. There's a, a caucus for values, ethics, and global concerns. There are many caucuses that the Values Caucus has given birth to. So the Values Caucus is sort of now like a values exploration modules. Even if one of the Values Caucus members has a a monthly ethical discussion at Columbia University. So it's given birth to a lot of things. One of the highlights of the Values Caucus work is something called a morning coffee conversation that was initially held with just ambassadors, but we've opened it up to other department heads of agencies and departments. And so it's off the record and it's done in such a way where we ask them to speak not as their title, but as themselves. We ask them the kind of what you're doing, you know, tell us a little bit about yourself as people and tell us what sitting in your position, what are the ethical uh, moorings, if you will, that can help the planet. Oftentimes these ambassadors or department heads, they say that they were surprised at what they said because they don't get a chance to share often the way that they think about things. And they said, you know, of course, they wouldn't have done it if they were on the record. But remember that they are not necessarily doing all the time what they want to do. They're doing things at the bidding of their capitals. You know, that's why they're there. And it always seems that it's a benefit to them to have had that experience going forward with their work, to have, to have had these very uh, meaningful and heartfelt conversations. As principal UN representative, do you have a vision in the direction you would like to have your role play that maybe currently it's not playing that role? Well, so one of the things that we have done that is different over the last maybe three, four or five years is we are becoming a learning organization. So we sit and we talk with each other and we say, what are we learning? What are the trends? How can we contribute to some of the things that we're involved in and give a spiritual, ethical dimension that this space is ready to hear? How can we say this thing that we believe in a way that people around us will understand? And so we're sharing these learnings in a reflective way. We get together every few months and we reflect and we share and then we learn, we share what we're learning and then we mature how we are behaving. And it's really great to work that way. When I have talked to a number of my colleagues and other organizations about the way that we're doing our work, they want to know more about that. I've been invited by some other organizations that I work with when they hear that we're working in that way to share that with them. I've even been invited to other organizations brainstorming meetings, share ideas on this process of learning and reflection. So what we have grown to, because remember this Baha'i Faith is a growing organization. It's in its infancy. It's not even 300 years old. And so it's growing rapidly in the maturity of the understanding of Baha'u'llah, the founders, 
mission for us as adherents of the faith which he revealed. One of the things that's very interesting is the Baha'i faith that I became a member of in the 70s is hard to recognize it from now to then. It is absolutely not the same. It is matured. That's the, that's the word to use. It's matured in our understanding. The institutions of the faith grow and mature. We're able to understand more what Baha'u'llah actually has in store for humanity. I am fascinated by that. I learn so much every day. When I sit and talk with friends and colleagues who many of my friends and colleagues are people of faith, but they don't have, and I don't mean to be to compare, but when we talk about these things, they, they share with me that they don't have that explosion of learning. And that's transformative. That, you know, that, that transforms the individuals in an organization. It transforms the organization itself. So one of the things we have in this learning is that we, the people like myself who do this work, we are beginning to work with members of the greater Baha'i community to help us do what we do. So that is one of the visions is that in another few years, I expect the UN office will regularly have collaborators that will help us do our work. One of the ways that the UN has made that possible, they allow us to have what they call a youth representative from 18 to 32. And this last year, we had our first youth representative who was a young woman from Connecticut. She was a senior who's interested in international law. And she was able to be with us for a couple of weeks in her schedule. Her high school made it available. She learned so much. She was so excited to be able to go to the UN and take in these sessions and to meet with the delegates and some of the ambassadors to talk about how she, as a young person, could contribute to the work of this organization. So it really advanced her perception of what she'd like to do going forward as a she's now a freshman in college. We look forward to having more youth representatives like that. It's a wonderful experience. Imagine as a high school student who is seriously interested in international affairs, if you could have this time to spend at the UN actually doing real work for an NGO. It's, it's a wonderful experience. So, Carl, aside from working at the Baha'i office, what do you think the direction of your life would have gone if you had not run into the Baha'i faith and become a Baha'i? What do you think your perspective would have been versus what you have now? Hmm. Well, that's very interesting because I think everything has kind of led me to this place. You know, I've been giving this some thought lately. The thing that is always there, you know, we've had a lot of conversations in the uh, last, what is it, a couple of years, you know, with these African-American uh, young people having issues with police, you know, mm -hmm. and race in the United States is real, you know, and it's been a real part of my life. And being a Baha'i is, is giving me a an environment where I can make sense of it. Because you have to make peace with it because it's endemic. It can kind of chew you up. 
it can become something that can make you bitter. It can make you uh, have a, a bitter or hurt heart. Becoming a Baha'i has helped me to understand it from a spiritual perspective because some people only see it from, a, if you will, a material perspective. If you see it from a spiritual perspective and the fact that spirits are beyond the limitations of the body and these identities that we hold so dear, whether it be our gender, our race, our economic background, our educational background, these physical identities that we hold so dear, becoming a Baha'i has helped me see beyond that. And it's liberating. I mean, that is a liberation that knows no bounds. That's the difference. The thing that is built into spirituality that is the best. It's a struggle. It's a process where you learn, you struggle, and you strive. And this continuous, when that becomes a rhythm that you become accustomed to and that you give yourself over to, then you're, you're in another place as a person. Carl, I want to thank you for sharing your thoughts, your work, and your life with us. I appreciate it very much. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Carl Morell, Principal UN Representative at the Baha'i Office of Public Affairs. You can find this interview and other interviews at abahaiperspective.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, where you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
just beyond the basis Stages of doubt And rise And rise To the exalted
shower of grace, river of love, ocean of peace and truth. This joyous world, a divine play. All this we are. Om. I'm talking about justice. I'm talking about one.
lights went out on the boats in the bay just before the sun was risen. So Friday morning has come again, and oh, what a gift I've been given. All my time is my own today, and what else could I have chosen but to give it to you? Can't give away what isn't mine And all that I have is my life and my time And the feel of a hometown where I landed Slipping away on the empty handed So all I can call these things my own When I give them to you in the palm of my hand So say the wise and the sages I've got nothing but I'm working God's land I've got the wealth of the ages I wear the clothing of the common man Doing the work of the angels Time flies like fine grains of sand my life is a turn of the pages And I'll give it to you Cause I can't give away what isn't mine And all that I have is my life and my time And the feel of a hometown where I landed the Slipping away I'll be empty handed So all I can call these things mine to you Into the hollow that is dark With those who speak no more It's only my life till it's ended And it's only what love demanded To give it to you It's like giving away what isn't mine Can I really claim my life or my time? Even the hometown where I landed The slipping away of the empty handed So all I can call these things my own Gonna give them to you And if I can call these things my own Gonna give them to you This is WXOJLP Northampton, 
103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.